Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. In late 2019, just prior to the pandemic, I traveled to Iceland, where I interviewed Andre Snir Magnusson, a prolific Icelandic writer, documentary filmmaker, and environmental activist. It was a wide-ranging conversation, but one that centered around his most recent book, On Time and Water, where Andre explores our relationship to time in an age of ecological crisis. With Iceland having lost its first large glacier, the Ok Glacier, in 2019, Andre spoke about the ways in which geological time is beginning to move at the speed of human time. Andre, you've had quite a varied career as a writer, an environmental activist, and even running for president of Iceland. Yes. And your work as a writer is just as varied, you know, from poetry and children's books to science fiction and nonfiction. Yet, running through all of your work uh, is the desire to take on big issues. Uh, consumerism, the hubris of technology, climate change, and recently you've been writing about time, both in The Casket of Time and now in your most recent book on time and water. And the books are really very different, Casket of Time being a fantastical young adult novel and Time and Water uh, being a work of nonfiction that's deeply personal and an exploration of the environmental crisis. And yet time connects them, and not just in their titles. What is it that has drawn you to write about time? Why is it so important to you? The casket of time and on time and water, they are kind of siblings, creative siblings, you could say. They both come out of kind of experiencing time now, having left geological speed, or nature having left geological speed, and starting to change in human speed. About our reactions to this environmental crisis are on a geological level, on contrary to what we have been doing in, in technology and progress and change during the 20th century, how we have scaled up all sorts of industries. We have known about this crisis for you know 40 years, but still we have not scaled up the solutions on the level that we have seen when other motivations are driving us. So both of these books are kind of exploring from the same root, yeah, the essence of time, our connection to time, I would say my new book that is on time and water, the idea is that when you talk about the future, it becomes vague because, of course, the future doesn't have anything. You know, The future doesn't have smell, texture, emotions. Like you hear a word like ocean acidification. It's not connected to anything. It has no, you know, it has no cultural significance. It's just ocean acidification. You know, what is that? Mm. And it's not connected to the Beatles. It's not connected to any president. It's not connected to any experience that we have. So it has no, it's not connected to Hitler. It's not connected to the you know, Second World War. It's just like, it's the biggest word in the world because it's about the biggest change that has happened chemically to the planet for uh, 50 million years. It should be so loaded that we should cry when we hear it, you know, because it should be so, it should almost be a taboo to say it if you don't want to spoil the party, you know. But it's it's uh, it's out there, but it doesn't have any connections. Mm. So to make some kind of, you know, put, put some kind of substance into the world, I feel like I have to, use it throughout the book and connect it to things like words that we didn't understand before, like uh, how we didn't understand freedom or other other words that, you know, came into the language in 1800-something or 1900-something. 
just to make us understand and and uh, think about the word and how we don't understand it instead of just saying it and act like the readers should understand it to use the word I have to explain first that we actually don't understand it and how we don't understand it because uh, you can't just throw a word out like that and expect the reader to be shocked or something I can't say things are enormous in the 12th degree you know like uh, I can't scale up my language like you can do with numbers. Mm. The only way to scale up language is by using poetry, grandmothers, uh, mythology, and all sorts of kind of kind of methods of uh, storytelling that humans have actually used for you know since stories were told for the first time. So I'm taking lots of this environmental science. And instead of saying I'm writing about climate change, I say I'm writing about time and water. And then people say, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> well, when I say I'm writing about climate change, it's like, oh, one more book about climate change. Right. So, here, so, as you describe, you hear white noise you hear when white you noise, hear yeah. the word climate change. Yeah. So I say, I'm writing about time and water. And people like open their eyes and ears and say, wow. And I say, what do you mean? And they say, you know, in the next 100 years, all the elements of water on the planet are changing. So the glaciers are going down, the sea level is going up, the pH, the ocean acid level is is, is reaching a level that we haven't seen for 50 million years and, and, and this is happening in, on a single person's lifetime. And then people kind of seem to rethink and, and re-understand things and I think uh, much of the rhetorics about climate change have gone through, you know, the same channels in our mind for a long time. You know, polar bears. I think you're a fan of polar bears. <laughs> like, so, like, you know, instead of polar bears, I use my grandmother. And also allowing myself to go a bit close to the spiritual without being new age, you know, without being, like, uh, totally new age, just allowing myself to go into travel writing of people that went into places and they felt some kind of holiness in these places. And that would just be kind of very basic romantic uh, semi-Christian holiness that they would, you know, they would just find God in the Icelandic highlands. Uh, or not only God, there was a, a poet that was describing how he, how his soul resonated with the silence-loaded space dimension of God. So he like he like went overboard in the Icelandic when, highlands. when he was in the highlands. And that same area was destroyed and I had been writing about it in my book Dreamland. So he felt the space dimension of God in this area that is now behind a dam under, under uh, the biggest reservoir in Iceland. And when I was talking about that area and I said it was beautiful, which is a very simple word, I was... Uh, People said I was just exaggerating, and I was just like going over emotional. And but the, the but the thing is that the combined rationality of humans, the rational approach to destroying those highlands, the combined rationality uh, is what is throwing the climate overboard. Yeah, I mean, there were a few things that really struck me when I was when I was reading some of the book, and and you're talking about some of those stories now, and. And uh, one was when you describe, you know, obviously the importance of your grandmother and sitting around the table with your grandmother and your mother and your daughter. And your grandmother is, I think, 94 years old. Yeah. And you use uh, a kind of certain thought experiment to, to, to connect your grandmother all the way up to your daughter's daughter. Yeah, yeah. Um, spanning something like 200 and... Yeah. 60 years or something. Yeah. So the idea is that my grandmother is born 1924. So she's 95 now. And of course, I'm extremely lucky to have a cool grandmother that you can talk to and r remembers everything. I actually have a grandfather that's 98. So <laughs> longevity is, is, is good in my... So my, she's born 1924. And we had this thought experiment at the table where I asked my grandmother... No, my daughter, to calculate uh, when she will become 94. So so she does that experiment and she finds out that 
that's in the year 2102. <laughs> that's like mind-blowing because she hadn't calculated that. And she was like, wow, am I alive? Am I like her in the year 2102? And I said, yes, maybe you live in the same house. <laughs> and maybe you will have a 10-year-old grandchild here. And you will talk to her about your personal experience with somebody that is born in the year 1924. And if your grandchild becomes 90, what year is that? And she does the calculation and she comes out with the year 2170 something. So it's like, yeah, imagine, I told my daughter, you will know somebody that is still alive in the year 2170 something. And not, not vaguely, this will be a child you'll, you will have known for maybe 10 or 15 years. And so the time that you connect personally, that you can touch with your bare hands, is almost 250 years. You know, so she can touch, my daughter can touch 1924 with her bare hands and 2170. And that's, that's almost 250 years. That, that's the arm's length. That's the, that's the personal connection to people. The, the intimate time of, of my daughter. And uh, so what I'm trying to do in my book is maybe uh, update our sense of time, <laughs> which is, a, of course, a very ambitious, <laughs> ambitious, uh, ambitious project, but to, uh, to connect us deeply into dates like 2150 as intimate time and to create just in a short chapter, some kind of pancake sci-fi. That is, because sci-fi can make us, tends to make us feel like the future is all about technology. You know, the future is all about gadgets and, uh, you know, you know, wire, you know, you know, just gadgets or flying cars or AI or whatever. While I think the primal goal of humans is to continue to be human, and even more human, <laughs> or the, not less human, uh, at least to be as human as my grandmother. I would think that I want my daughter to be as human as my grandmother, and I would think that she would expect her grandchild to be as human as she knew her grandmother. So so that's pancake sci-fi. So, so the basis is we just want to be able to sit in a, in a, in a kitchen, and eat pancakes <laughs> with a grandmother and just exchange stories and life experiences and things. So that's why I write a chapter in my book that is sci-fi, but it's pancake sci-fi. <laughs> there's, there's no, there are no gadgets, there's nothing. It's just about at what time are you a human with another human? Because the sci-fi part, the, the sci-fi element, the, the gadgets, it tends to alienate us from from the uh, the core of the future. So you read a sci-fi book and people are kind of just semi-human because there's so much, because the, all your focus is on the, the transportation and and the surroundings and stuff. But, uh, and so I wanted to bring that into my story that is quite on the contrary to what I was doing in Love Star. Right, which that, is really that, all, that about is, is all about going, technology <laughs> going haywire. And, and gadgets and stuff. So I'm I'm going like uh, very anti love star in this book, like like taking away all technology and just meditating on when is someone still alive that you will love, and and that is what the future is about. Right. I mean, because in in some ways, one of the major flaws of our civilization is its inability to see itself into the future. Um, yeah. And yet there are examples of cultures, native cultures, like you imagine something seven generations into the future, the choice you make today has to impact uh, seven generations, whether that's positive or negative, yeah. you know, so the, the, the knowledge is out there, but it's definitely not part of mainstream decision making in relation to yes. responding to climate change. And, and basically, like, like you have in the US, so four year decision making, or, or not even that, maybe because they're already in the 
almost always running for president. <laughs> like, it seems like it's short term uh, thinking, very really short term thinking. thinking. And and uh, so he can't take any major decisions in the last term. But then when the new government comes, it's basically unwinding what the former government did. So it's like this like forward and reverse, and, and there's little progress that you see. So, And our inability to plan 30, 40, 50, 100 years into the future, which is kind of, uh, I think that's cathedral thinking, when uh, one generation you know, starts the half of the cathedral expecting the next generations to finish it in the next 300 years. Right. And that is something that uh, we seem to lack very much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you talked about how we're moving at a different speed of time now, how geological time has started moving at the speed of human time, which is quite a, a profound shift. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's talked about very often. You know, why, why do you think it's so hard for people to kind of take that on? Well, I think, you know, when humans, during the hundred years of the 20th century, when we went from one to seven billion, you know, of course, that is a, some kind of an ex explosion. So we have experienced so much dramatical shift in our environment, which is basically our built environment, you know, our cities are, you know, just... Imagine what my grandparents have lived. I actually asked my grandparents, uh, are 100 years a long time or a short time? And they both said a short time because they've experienced it on their own body. And, uh, and then I asked my grandfather, when do you feel the world changed the most? And he said, during the last 10 years. And that is actually statistically true the world changed the most during the last 10 years, that is. Or or since 2000, I think. Uh, more more CO2 has been pumped into the atmosphere. Yeah, I think half of the CO2 that has been pumped out happened in the last 20 years. Uh, half of the plastic produced on the planet has been produced since 2000. So, uh, so this is happening kind of culturally and in industry and things. But I, I think what we find difficult to compare is that is a difference in a cultural built environment, a city that changes a lot or a country that changes a lot goes from underdeveloped to modern that that happens during lifetime and we adapt quite a lot quite well to that so right, people are kind right. of used to that but when the oceans change from 8.1 pH level to 7.7, .7. that is a completely different phenomenon. And that is so large and should be so alarming that we should, you know, pull the handbrake on so many things that that we're doing today. But it seems like we don't manage to. And that's why when I have lectures for like uh, college students and I ask them to do this calculation, when is someone still alive that you will love? And they bring out their numbers, you know, 2,160. Then I ask them, okay, here's a graph. Here's a scientist saying what's happening in 2,090. Do you now feel it's beyond your imagination? Or is it only halfway in your kind of concept of your your continuity? So, so that is kind of the, you could say, the rhetorical, the... Uh, the propaganda, <laughs> you know, the 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 uh, you could say the uh, the metaphor that I'm trying to create in time and water is this arch that if you have kind of meditated that 2160 is your intimate time, then 2090 is too close for comfort. Instead of being just a fuzzy date far out into the future. It also seems like, uh, and you write about this, um, is one of the problems of people disconnecting to what's happening in the future, or even disconnecting to what's happening around them, is the way that we describe it and the language that we use. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the importance of mythological language, which is not something that's usually 
brought up in scientific circles to describe what's happening. But if you talk about moving from geological timescale to human timescale, those are kind of mythical transformations to have glaciers melt, oceans become acidic, you know, the air become filled with carbon dioxide and start heating up. Those are kind of mythical stories if they're all happening in the space of, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Something that if if all this is happening in 100 years, that is biblical, you know, those are biblical times. You know, such big changes are, uh, that is time of mythology. You know, the world created in, you know, what is it? The world was created in seven days or the ocean changing in a hundred years. That is closer in time than than 50 million years. You know, seven years against a hundred years are... Uh, those 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 timescales are closer than 100 years against 50 million years if you understand what i'm saying yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so so this is actually a creative story or a apocalyptic that is if it can be experienced in a single lifetime on a single human being that can tell it from beginning to end uh, that is mythological mythology is all about Big ideas, big elements, and uh, and the main forces—you know, the god of thunder and love, and the the beginning and, and the end of the world—it's all all compact, maybe just in a few verses, and becomes this kind of eternal source of inspiration. And that's actually how my first children's book, the story of the blue planet, came about, because I was thinking mythology was all written before we knew we, we were living on a planet. And I wanted to create kind of modern mythology about what it means to live on a planet. And then uh, at the same time, I was interviewing my grandfather because he was a surgeon in New York. He's 98 now. And he operated on Oppenheimer, the father of the nuclear bomb. And I lived this terror of the bomb, you know, in my childhood. I, I couldn't believe that. They would not press the button at <laughs> in the next ten years. You know they, that would probably happen. And uh, I was also kind of starstruck that he had actually met the person that changed the laws of basically the fundamentals of nature or the elements. That uh, that Prometheus he went to the highest mountain and came down with fire and gave it to humans and empowered us. But Oppenheimer went into the smallest material came out with something bigger than a volcano and made fire gods out of uh, the world leaders. And the ability that Genghis Khan or Hitler or Napoleon, nobody had this this button they could push <laughs> to destroy the planet. But then I thought, of course, through my childhood, that Oppenheimer was would be our destruction, that uh, his creation would be, you know, that his button would be, you know, the end of the world. But now we know that it wasn't Oppenheimer, it was Prometheus. Because it's the fires, it's the fire that is causing global warming, uh, all this oil that we're burning. And then how we have hidden the fires, so we don't see any fire on a daily basis. We don't see the fire culture that we are, how everything is burning under the, under the, you know, in our cars, the fire in our cars, the fire in our planes the fire behi- behind everything. So I calculated, you know, how much fire have we created? And and that is actually mythological. That is, uh, and the gods were right when they punished Prometheus because they knew that we could not handle the fire. And uh, if anybody remembers the volcanic eruption in Iceland in 2010. The one that grounded all the yeah, flights. Yeah, the, the one that grounded all the flights. That was actually a, the first environmentally conscious eruption in world history because while it grounded all the flights, it actually reduced emissions. That is, the, the combined flights in Europe and North America uh, would have been a greater fire than this volcanic eruption. So this volcano emitted about 150,000 tons per day. 
the world emissions are about 100 million tons per day. So if you translate what we pump out into the atmosphere on a daily basis, and if we translate into these volcanoes, then it is like we had opened up 650 of these volcanoes, and not for temporary two weeks like the one we had in Iceland, but every day, every moment, all year, for decades. And on a geological timescale, I have not, I cannot recall any period in the last millions of years where we had 650 volcanoes erupting for 30 or 40 years. You know, that has not happened. So when people try to deny that our, our emissions are having any effect, <clears throat> that is a very optimistic take on opening up 650 volcanoes. And, and that is the, the power behind all our existence. And, and that is the task of the next 30 years, is to put a lid on all these volcanoes. And that is a gargantuan task, actually. And you seem quite, I mean, I guess, optimistic that, that it's possible for us to address this. I mean, you do question it in your book. Is it too late? Um, can it really be done? Uh, have we opened the Pandora's box too far? Yeah. Yeah, so I could be very realistic and just say, you know, we're, you know we've just gone off the rails and, and we're just... There's no cruise control, which is which is going to slide into whatever happens. But I, I don't feel like I want to raise my children into that kind of mentality. And I do actually think that there are too many things that humans did accomplish during the 20th century, you know, to the good or the bad. Uh, there are many things that we have scaled up. There are many progresses in human rights and other things. I do believe that if you look at how we scaled up almost anything, you know, flights or the internet or mobile phones or infrastructures, that the combined human ingenuity, the combined talent, resources, and time to actually tackle this. The only problem is is how stubborn our institutions are, how much time we waste on conflict, on arguing is this true or not. Uh, so I actually do believe also that you know the, now the kids are in a climate strike and it's difficult to talk to kids about these issues because I don't want to have a lecture for kids and say, you know, I'm sorry, we blew it. Because also deep down, I don't really believe that it has to be so. And uh, so I just tell them that, uh, you know, the task is obvious. <laughs> you know, the task is this, you know, and, and I show them the graph from the IPCC you know, we have to get emissions down to zero in the next 30 years. And uh, and it is technically possible. We know that we can scale down all sorts of wasteful industries and scale up lots of uh, renewable technologies. So I tell them that when I was, you know, choosing my path, it was more like a, it didn't feel any any purpose. You know, we, we didn't feel any, uh, like, like we just got all this infrastructure, you know, all the highways, the hospitals, everything. And our purpose was just, you know, studying something to place ourselves, you know, in a well-paying job somewhere to have a, have a good life. Now you could say the paradigm has shifted and what needs to be done is kind of obviously in front of us. And it's not essentially negative to be a generation that has to rethink and reinvent and redesign almost everything. So when we went into design or something, it was more about, okay, here are 100 million chairs. I'm going to make yet another chair, but it's just going to be as meaningless as all of the other chairs, you know. But now you could say, okay, we have this process, we have this, it's damaging, and we have to make it good. And, and it's not essentially negative to be part of a generation that feels like everything they are coming close to is making things better. And it doesn't have to be when somebody says, why am I studying algebra? Then the teacher has to say, you know, well, this is the graph, you know, we have to draw down 100 
or 1,000 gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere in the next 50 years, and nobody has an idea how to do it. <laughs> That's why you have to study algebra. Uh, and and also, you know, people went to the moon 40 years after they they uh, crossed the Atlantic. So you can't deny that, you know, and they were doing this in the in the 60s. So, and they put enormous effort into that. And actually, scientists have pointed out that those moon landings and that space exploration was taking about three to five percent of the GDP of the U.S. and has actually left us lots of useful inventions. And a similar amount would actually be enough to come quite close to solving quite a lot of these problems. But a lot of those, uh, you know, examples that you're citing, you know, they also work so successfully because they were done in, you know in conflict in some way, you know, it's like trying to beat the Russians, you know, they had a common enemy, you know, or an enemy they could, they could, they could um, rally around, you know, the government saying, we're going to beat the Russians, we're going to get in space, we're going to get the moon, we're going to be the first to get there, who's going to be the first to fly across the Atlantic, it's, you know, competitive. And, you know, people talk about like a World War to style mobilization, yeah. um, Manhattan projects, you yeah. know, on a global scale, but those were all done against an enemy. And yeah. how do you have the kind of mobilization or you know changes you're talking about? Other people are talking about without a common enemy. There is a common enemy ourselves. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but that makes it harder because yeah. we're all complicit. Yes, yeah. and and also. Uh, it's a race where either everyone wins or everyone loses. This is actually a very interesting paradigm shift, planetary paradigm shift, because uh, I don't think we have had this like common threat. This is kind of a comet that is approaching us. Uh, so th this uh, this questions, you know. But the comet would be easier because we could see it. Yeah, we could see coming it. Coming yeah, towards yeah. us. Yeah, you know? this slow-boiling yeah, maybe we have to just make some metaphor out of it, but uh, but the thing is that it also questions lots of you know like a patent. You know, if somebody finds the patent to solve <laughs> a very big problem, uh, will that be shared across borders? Will that be shared shared to African nations? Or you know, we we already see it with uh, you know we have solved AIDS to uh, some extent. Still, it's being kind of kept patented instead of just distributed like penicillin, you know, throughout Africa where people are still dying from it in the, like people have been doing for the last 20 years. So the solution is already here, but it's not distributed because somebody has the patent for it. And, and this will put lots of strains on people's ideologies. And, and how do we, what's the role of the government how do you make these incentives? Uh, who's going to pay for these things? It, right. It's a, it's a. But of course, like the race to the moon, it was, it, you know, who who benefited from that other than just getting the, the the prize for being first? You know, it's not like, it's not like you found something that, uh, other than the, seeing the planet from space, <laughs> like in your film. <laughs> well, one one of the things that I I question. Uh, often is when people talk about, you know, transitioning to a clean, green economy, for instance. You know, we've got yeah. the, the Green New Deal in the United yeah. States and transitioning to uh, a waste-free economy. You know, all the solutions are there. Uh, as you said, there are so many solutions to so many of the problems we're facing. But where I get hung up sometimes is that are we approaching it with the same, you know, model that got us here in the first place? So, yes, we could have, you know, all have electric cars and, you know, clean burning stoves and all these, you know, technologies that would prevent us from emitting CO2, but we're still a consumer-based society. And, you know, when I read Love Star, one of the things that struck me so much was, you know, these inventions that that he comes up with, you know, first understanding the way that birds communicate and that's a way that humans can communicate. And it's incredible, 
you know, discovery, but then it's used in a commercial purpose. And yeah. then there's the discovery of, you know, we have soulmates out there. Yeah. And then that's used for a commercial purpose. And then death is used for a commercial purpose. And then the search for God is used for a commercial purpose. Yeah. So each one of these discoveries can then get co-opted. And I, I mean, trying to draw a parallel between, you know, what you're exploring there in Love Star and this kind of hubris of technology that we now see on a global scale. And we say we can we haven't invented the technology to suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere, but we will be we will be able to do it. And yet we don't talk about the deeper questions, you know, that you're also talking about in your book, which is, you know, thinking about our relationship of time generationally and making changes based on on what you can hold in your hand and what you can love. I've kind of been conflicted with that as well because uh, there's also this idea that we could connect it back to nature again um, on some kind of a deeper level, but in some way we we have we have been launched off that if we we have detached and uh, from like, nature, yes. Yeah, so like we found these oil wells. And uh, these uh, million years of summer that uh, were lying there underground, we bypassed nature. And we created six billion human beings out of this energy, you know, the superpowers that this oil has given us, uh, the oil, gas, coal, you know. We have become blind to the superpowers and, and how our social fabric is totally based on these superpowers that we have and if we remove these superpowers then then there's so much that has been kind of placed wrongly <laughs> according to what we can do with our manual labor so i think that uh, you know the super you know, how 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 long would it take for me to take my family on a road trip around iceland if i had to drag the the, the vehicle, you know, like we, we just take it for granted that we're, you know, five hours taking a two-ton vehicle with all the kids and everything, you know, across the country. So we have, and and then taking for granted all the food that we can harvest from sending 10 people in a trawler coming back with a thousand tons of fish or something. So, so we are kind of addicted to these superpowers that energy and technology has given us and if that was taken away in a disrupt disruptive way, then we could also have social disruption. Well, we're could, seeing that already. That, that, yeah. yeah, that could create uh, chaos and possible consequences that would be equally bad as the worst effects of climate change. That is, we saw, you know, we we saw Europe burn twice during the twentieth century. So just ideology inequality and just disruption in itself can cause a war and can cause something like Syria or something. You know, even though basically you could have all the resources and technology to to live in a good society. So what I'm trying to imagine is, is there a way to jump from this oil-driven uh, existence into another existence and and I actually don't really know <laughs> if it's possible. But it's a kind it, of a mythological question. Because I think we will need these superpowers still. That is, we will need energy and 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 this advantage that uh, technology has given to us. Because some people say that this can't be solved with technology, or or technology was what it put us into this place in the in the first place, right. and and we can't rely on that. Uh, but I still don't think that we can take 1,000 gigatons out of the atmosphere. Uh, we can do it with trees in, in, to some extent, but I do think that technology has to solve it because I just think we've gone beyond what nature can actually repair itself. And we put it out with technology, and I think we will have to take it down again to some extent. It could be 50% or something with technology and uh, we've seen that here in Iceland where they have these first plants of uh, of carbon capture and turning that into stone that industry uh, 
whether you like it or not, has to become like 50 gigatons, you know, in the next, uh, or even a thousand gigatons. So, so what I'm trying to understand is that even though maybe I don't like how we got here, we're still stuck with all sorts of expertise and engineering and infrastructures and things that will that's also have the key to solving the problem right but you know going back to the um the analogy to the world war ii mobilization right which which was so successful you know you know in in that case they weren't focused on keeping the u.s or global economy running No, no they were focused on beating in, you know the Japanese and the Germans, yeah. right? And so everything went towards that goal. So, you know, if you're trying to transition a global economy, or you're not really even trying to transition it, you're trying to hold on to it on one hand. Some people are trying to transition it, and then you're going to say, but at the same time, we're also going to invent two technologies yeah. or apply two yeah. new yeah. technologies yeah. in solving this. It's there's there's no focus. I mean, you you could say the smart thing to do would be to say, okay, all effort will be on just trying to address the crisis we aren't going to think about the economy we can't even think about the economy we'll deal with that when we're there in 50 yeah. years yeah. people would never accept something as as dramatic as that we shouldn't think of this as ending capitalism and starting some kind of a socialist clean utopia because you know ideologies are always failing and 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 corruption all sorts of problems are failing us but i do think that this special problem that we have will need some different type of governance and, and probably this capitalist era that we've gone through in the last 30 years is not the the model that we need it's not the model that will solve this right and and also how we divide into borders and uh, and also how we keep technologies closed to to others I, I wrote about kind of this dilemma in my book dreamland which was also about the economic crisis here in Iceland. Yeah, so it was in the uptake of the... It was before the crash, actually. We were building a dam in Iceland. And I was trying to explain that it wasn't about to have built a dam. It was about to be building dams. You know, We had a big lobby of engineers, and they did not want to have built a dam. They always wanted to be building a dam. So whatever was built once would then be replicated. Yes. Yeah, so and and after they have had built a dam, they would be even better at building dams. So they would <laughs> they were even more eager. And dam all the rivers to, in Iceland. To, so that's actually what they did plan. So so well, so that was what my book was about. That the engineers had the vision of damming every single river in Iceland and selling that to aluminum companies. And and I thought that was a totally dystopian view and I didn't understand how you could go through engineering and live in this society with this beautiful landscape and have this dream of destroying it all and selling it to aluminum companies. And also, of course, the economic side of it was not essentially good. You know, it's not a a monoculture of an island with, you know, five big aluminum companies. It's not essentially a good economy. So I was kind of trying to understand this situation where we are immensely immensely creative, you know, an engineer that can build a dam, you know, in the highlands of and tunnels with like 80 kilometers long and uh, and you know all that stuff, you know, is a very creative person. That is he he has lots of talent. But how can he be so stuck on this single narrow path that he will be be like a, he will be fierce as a lion if you try to step in his path and he can't build the next dam. So we had a really fierce lobby of uh, undermining uh, environmental laws, environmental rules, environmentalists and uh, natural scientists that were kind of standing in their way of building the next dam. And these were really militant, arrogant uh strong lobbies that we had especially in the around 2000 to 2006 we have managed to with lots of mobilization to kind of 
kind of change that path. But I was trying to tell a story how to explain this. Why did they want to build another dam, even though it didn't have any economic sense? So, so I was wondering about the pyramids in Egypt. You know, why are these pyramids three? You know, what is that? Why do they have these three giant pyramids? And I didn't know very much about it, but I, I made this th- uh, thought experiment. I, I, I would bet that they were not built like, uh, you know, one pyramid and then 500 years later another pyramid. I bet it was just one crazy period when they made these three pyramids because it's not possible to build one pyramid. If you're going to build one pyramid and have 40,000 people build a pyramid for 40 years, you don't stop doing that. You know, you, do, you don't just say, thank you, you can go home now. Because because if you are building a pyramid with 40,000 people uh, for 40 years, that's what your economy is about. It's about building pyramids. And, and, and you have suddenly like generations, you know, because people lived a shorter life then. And so suddenly you have like, you know, two or three generations that don't remember anything than working on this pyramid. And the whole supply chain of, 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 uh, of your country is about, you know, making the ropes, cutting the stones. The whole hierarchy of the society is about where you are in building the pyramid from chief architect to, to uh, the lowest slave to, to the pers- people supplying, you know, this structure. So if you stop building a pyramid, you have chaos. You know, you just say, go home now. You don't tell people just to go home and and do something, you know, people because they have been used to having us an assigned job for forty years. They, you know, they'll ask, you know, what what do I do now? So naturally, they start building another pyramid because that's the only way to keep society and the structure uh, whole. And after eighty years, nobody even has an idea that <laughs> that there should not be another pyramid. It's just a question of how much bigger the pyramid should be. So it's not until they have built the third pyramid that some people start scratching their heads. Like, okay, so we're going to build a fourth <laughs> and a fifth. You know, Can this go on like this? And they hear rumors from, uh, from Greece where uh, not everyone is a slave, just every other person is a slave. And, uh, and they have these amphitheaters and they just watch tragedies. You know, so they have like get these news about alternative ways of life, uh, but so I actually think that this pyramid theory, and I and then I went into the archaeology, and it was actually true. The pyramids, the the Great Giza pyramids, were built in a in a crazy spam of of one hundred and twenty years, and I think that now with the children's strikes, that uh, we finally have a generation that is seriously questioning. They don't want to build pyramids anymore. They don't want to build pyramids anymore. And they don't see the sense of it. And they don't understand why am I toiling my whole life, dragging myself to some job just to have this metal case around me that we call cars. Why are we putting all these resources into these roads and highways and these ramps and all this? You know, Why have we... They're questioning everything, like the, the foundations of, of what we're doing. And why we're doing it, because they see the damage of it. So I think that this generation that is now climate striking will bring the change on a much faster level than we've seen before. There is change in in how we eat, how we dress, you know, because their dreams will be different from the dreams that we had, because their dreams are against the real threat. That is, you were asking, what is the threat? We had Hitler, we had the competition of the moon landing, these kids, they feel the threat. They don't, you don't have to tell them that there's a race to something. What's interesting about, at least from my perspective, when I hear whether it's Greta or other representatives of this movement or just the, the kids who are part of it, you know, nine-year-olds, 15-year-olds, is they're not talking necessarily about we need to transition to a green economy. You know, they're talking about we need to have a future. Yeah, yeah. So, which in some ways is a 
is a much better message because it's it, it's not trying to say, well, we need to transition from building pyramids made of fire to pyramids made of, uh, you know, lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, they're saying we want a future and we need you to wake up to the reality of what's happening. And, and it's a very simple message that's read over and over again. You know, you read Greta's speeches. They are very similar, all of them, the same message, the same message. And that's what's resonating is it's just a simple reminder of the truth of what's happening. And she's uh, astonishingly direct, actually, uh, and and everything is actually based on science. And she's like, yeah, completely. This is like uh, straight to uh, our conscience, and uh, and it's uh, amazing how middle-aged men are furious <laughs> over this child. <laughs> how dare her? <laughs> how dare she say this? Yeah, well, we've seen how like feminism have, has changed the language. Right, and I think that actually paved the way for Greta, that we removed lots of obstacles that were before used against a child like this or a girl that would speak, and and uh, prejudice against autism or youth or 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 a female. So these obstacles were cleared in the last ten years, and that made it impossible to brush her off without being obscene. So so her voice just rises and there's the old bully that would have taken her down doesn't have the social permit anymore to do it. So I think that these kids will question lots of things in a similar way over habits and make lots of things that we are doing now socially unacceptable. And that's how the change will happen much sooner than uh, we might have expected. And it seems like the ideology that they are suggesting we embrace is is uh, an earth-based ideology. Yeah. If you want to be really optimistic, then you see also like yeah how these kids are are unified and uh how this uh and still very unified movement of you know you see the climate strikes in Uganda, you see it in Kenya, you see it in Latin America, you know, India, Sweden, North America, 500,000 kids in, in Quebec. This should be a big source of optimism that that the paradigm shift is actually really happening. And m- maybe I'm just in some kind of wishful thinking or something, but but at least for the next 20 years, I want to believe this. <laughs> you know, I might go into cynicism somewhere in my 60s. But <laughs> but still, I want to believe that this is a generation that will take this very seriously. Mm. Well, here in Iceland, you had the experience uh, earlier in this year of, of actually witnessing, you know, very, very intimately the results of what happens when you have this fire-driven beast of the global economy, uh, you know, the coal and oil and gas that's been unleashed into the atmosphere um, and how it affects the glaciers here in Iceland. And recently lost the first large glacier in Iceland, the OK Glacier. And a commonly known glacier in Iceland, uh, which was the Ok Glacier. And uh, so the first victim of Prometheus the curse of Prometheus, kind of on the on the glacial level in Iceland, and um, I got the uh, strange role or uh, assignment to write uh, a, a the, eulogy, right? Yeah, the eulogy <laughs> to the glacier and uh, write uh, some words for the plague that was suppo- was to be put in memory of this glacier, and uh, I scratched my head quite a lot this summer when I was writing this, like, okay, wow. Because actually, yeah, in the next hundred years, we're, we're going to lose even more important glaciers than this one, and culturally significant, like uh, Snæfellsjökull, which is where Jules Verne went into the center of Earth, that uh, spiritual people believe is one of the, the Earth's uh, uh, kind of energy centers, and uh, 
and uh, or or you could say new age people and and in literature is kind of one of the culturally most uh, important glaciers we have in Iceland and uh, yeah so I w- wrote these words and we put the plaque in August and um, and first I thought it was a text I was writing a text I was thinking okay I'm writing a text for this single lonely traveler that stumbles upon this plaque every other year so I thought that actually I was writing a text for uh, very few people but then that blew up and uh, and the event became quite global so it's probably the text that has uh, been read the most of what I have written until now and um, I can read it for you that would be great thank you Wok is the first glacier to lose its status as a glacier in the next 200 years all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path this monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done only you know if we did it August 2019, 415 ppm CO2. I read an op-ed of yours in The Guardian, I think it was, and you talked about the process of of writing this memorial. And you wrote, how do you write a eulogy for a glacier? Uh, Think about it. How would you go about that? Having grown up with glaciers as a geological given, a symbol of eternity, how do you say goodbye? Yeah. I mean, it's a very potent, yeah. potent questions. Because, uh, yeah, like my grandparents, they were part of the Icelandic Glacial Research Society. So uh, kind of the nostalgia of glaciers was very strong in my family. Actually, there's a peak on Vatnajökull, which is Europe's biggest glacier, that is named after my grandmother. So uh, so that's only in the 50s that these places were actually discovered. And at that time, the, uh, the glaciers were eternal. That is, they were something that was there and they were doing research just yet basically for science itself and uh, to understand the, the glaciers. And, uh, and to imagine that they... And you have like a thousand meters or what, 3,000 feet of ice under your feet if you're on the central cap of that glacier. That's like three Empire State buildings stacked upon each other. And, and you stretch that up out to the horizon. You know, the, the mass is so immense. And to imagine something like this to be actually fragile is is actually yeah mythological again it's it's uh it's uh it's very difficult to get your mind around it i could probably in my lifetime if i become you know if i become a cool 100 year old i could probably write 10 of these 20 of these just in iceland and i could write the eulogy to actually some very culturally significant glaciers and geologically significant as well. And that is, again, that is not something that one single human being should experience, that yes, we can experience a city expanding, uh, a civilization growing. I could live the rise or the fall of a Roman Empire or something, but uh, to live the fundaments of the planet, that is the pH of the oceans, the the glaciers of a planet, the the uh, atmosphere's heat, that is not something that you should experience in a lifetime. On Time and Water has just been released in the U.S. Andres also adapted the book into a special one-man show of music, film, and storytelling that we'll be featuring in our special virtual event series celebrating the launch of our second annual print edition, which is now available. The event is free, and we hope you can join us this Friday, March 26, at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You can sign up at the event section of our website.
Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Ben Solitiano. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.